This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start with breaking news in our world lead. Just moments ago, the White House confirming that it plans to impose sanctions on Russian President Vladimir Putin and on Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, the U.S. following the lead of the European Union and the United Kingdom, which sanctioned those two Russian leaders earlier today. This move accompanies growing fears among U.S. intelligence officials that despite valiant and courageous efforts by Ukrainians to defend their country, Ukraine's capital city of Kyiv could fall under Russian control within the next few days. That's according to two sources familiar with the latest U.S. intelligence who say that the belief among Western officials is that Russia's plan is to topple the Ukrainian government. In fact, moments ago, Kyiv's mayor warned of a difficult night ahead. That was shortly followed by this, the sounds of air raid sirens across the capital city of Kyiv. The U.S. has observed at least 200 total Russian missile launches into Ukraine since the beginning of the Russian invasion, with a senior U.S. defense official confirming that some of those rockets have hit Ukrainian civilian residential areas. Though, as of now, we do not know for sure how many innocent Ukrainians have been killed. CNN's Jim Shudo starts off our coverage from Lviv, which is in western Ukraine, Jim has new details on how the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, is trying to rally his nation to fight against the Russian invaders. The city of Kyiv under siege. Attacks close to the city center, with Russian military vehicles seen on the city streets. The sound of gunfire echoed in residential areas. Air raid sirens sounding across the capital. The U.S. now concerned that Kyiv could fall into Russian control within days. And the civilians of Ukraine are paying a horrible price of war. (laughs) Citizens who fled to the safer western part of the country still finding themselves under threat and the Ukrainian military doing their best to halt the Russian advance, claiming to have inflicted some 800 Russian casualties and destroying more than 30 tanks, seven aircraft, and six helicopters. Russia denies losing any aircraft to the Ukrainians. The Russian advance is going forward. Overnight, Russian units pushed into Ukraine from three sides, including an amphibious attack near the city of Mariupol. Ukrainian President Zelensky today released video of himself defiant on the streets of the capital, trying to rally his nation. We are all here defending our independence, our state, and it will remain so. Glory to our defenders. Zelensky spoke with President Biden today, saying they discussed strengthening sanctions, concrete defense assistance, and an anti-war coalition. But earlier he expressed frustration with the West, saying sanctions on Russia are not enough. This morning, we are defending our country alone. Just like yesterday, the most powerful country in the world looked on from a distance. Zelensky appealed directly to Vladimir Putin for talks. There is fighting all over Ukraine now. Let's sit down at the negotiating table to stop the death of people. For his part, Putin has called on the Ukrainian people to rise up against Zelensky's government. Take power into your own hands. Russia's foreign minister claimed Russia would not target Zelensky, 
Никто не собирается. Ukraine released this exchange between Russian and Ukrainian forces on the Black Sea before the Ukrainians were killed. And their last words? Tonight, CNN has new reporting that the U.S. believes Russia is threatening Ukrainian soldiers that it will kill their families if they don't surrender. These are mob tactics, Jake. But I will tell you, here in Lviv, we are seeing more uh, fully uniformed Ukrainian military in full combat gear inside the city center. They are here to defend it, around the country to defend the country. They are not backing down. Famous last words, Russian warship, go F yourself. Jim Shudo. In Lviv, yeah. Ukraine. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's go now to CNN's Clarissa Ward, who's live for us in the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. And Clarissa, the mayor of Kiev is warning that Russian troops are, quote, very close to the capital. Tell us what's going on, on the ground there. Well, Jake, it's a it's a very eerie situation tonight. It's basically completely silent out there, with the exception of the steady thud of explosions, mostly in the distance. A few of them just about 20 minutes ago were a little closer. And then we heard those air raid sirens, which you mentioned before. That's pretty much the only sound you hear out on the streets these days, is those air raid sirens, which are going off a lot. People are hunkered down, taking cover, fearing the worst. We know that Russian paratroopers have already taken control of an airfield just on the outskirts of Kiev. There are also Russian troops moving towards the city in three different directions. Um, they have been facing some pretty stiff resistance from Ukrainian forces, but the expectation from many is that it won't be long before they are able to press further in. We actually drove here today from the city of Kharkiv in the east, and we saw along the way a Ukrainian military convoy of about three vehicles that had been bombed. It looked like it had been targeted an aerial bombardment. It was a multi-rocket launcher along with a, um, a, a sort of a truck with gas or petrol on it and another vehicle. There were a huge amount of smoke and we saw firemen on the scene still trying to put out the flames. At least one Ukrainian soldier that we saw for ourselves was obviously killed in that attack. But I think what it goes to show you is the distinct disadvantage that the Ukrainian military has here because they don't have air defenses and because it's so difficult for them to hide the movements of weaponry like a multi-rocket launcher, for example. The Russians are able now to just 
come in and and target opportunistically where they, they, they see that they have a moment to do so. As we got much closer to the Capitol, we saw a large group of civil defense volunteers. You know, Jim mentioned in his package that people are just signing up to fight. They want to be involved in this fight. They're collecting weapons where they can collect them. We saw them standing there with a huge pile of tires. Uh, presumably, they were planning to set fire to those tires to attempt to block the road if Russian forces started to get close to the capital. But it obviously gives you a sense as well, Jake, of just how outmatched they are. Because at the end of the day, despite the courage and the valor, it's just not realistic to think that burning tires and fighting in this way can really compete effectively with one of the most sophisticated militaries in the world um, in using air power as a major, major advantage, obviously, Jake. And, and Clarissa, we know that Ukrainian President Zelensky spoke with President Biden today. What, what can you tell us about that call and what can you tell us about Zelensky's thinking right now? I think Zelensky is obviously in a tremendously difficult position right now. He has been appealing endlessly, not just to President Biden, but to all of the European leaders. He said he called all leaders of 27 nations, begging them to essentially let Ukraine join NATO, the idea being that that might then enable them to invoke Article 5 and, and, and come to the rescue here with some kind of military support, because despite the strength of these sanctions, um, let's be very clear, it does not appear that they are having an effect in the moment in terms of, uh, of sort of softening the ferocity of, of Russia's advances, particularly on the city here in Kiev. We heard also from Zelensky last night saying he's target number one for the Russians and his family is target number two. And yet he still came out tonight on his Facebook account with surrounded by some of his cabinet members and made a selfie video where he said, we are here. We are in Kiev. We will defend you. We will not leave you, um, which is, you know, it's pretty exceptional courage when you think about the fact, Jake, that it's been some time now that the Americans have actually advised Zelensky that he should think about leaving the capital because there is a sense that he could be in very, very real danger once Russian ground troops reach uh, the city center, Jake. All right, Clarissa Ward, live in Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you and stay safe. Let's break this down with retired Colonel Cedric Leighton at the Magic Wall. He's a CNN military analyst as well as former member of the Joint Staff at the Pentagon. Um, so, Colonel, show us on the map exactly where Russian troops are around the Ukrainian capital of Kiev and what your assessment is of how soon Russia could possibly take the capital. All right, Jake. Yes. Uh, first of all, we've got the Obolinsky district right here. This is the northern northernmost area of Kyiv, and it is the area where Russian troops are coming in this way and this way and this way. Those are the three areas that uh, Clarissa mentioned in, in her reporting. I noticed that there, the Antonov Airport is right over here. Special forces from Russia had captured that the other day. Matthew Chance happened upon them when they were there. This is what uh, how they're doing it. They're going basically uh, one piece uh, by another. And what they're going to do here in terms of how long this will take them, I would estimate if they're going to nominally capture Kiev, it's going to take about uh, 24 to 48 hours for them to do that. Uh, there is a chance, of course, that when they capture a place like Kiev, it's capture in name only, but there'll still be a lot of resistance going on uh, in the streets of this major city. 
And in fact, when we break this down into Obalon right here, this is the, that district that I told you about. It is surrounded on three sides by water. Uh, it's relatively triangular. A lot of residential areas in here, also some factories and, uh, and pieces of, of economic uh, activity in this area. Uh, it will be tough going if the Ukrainians defend this area house by house, street by street. And let's take a, a bigger uh, picture look now. Um, we're seeing a ton of Russian troops coming in from the north, from Belarus, uh, which is an ally of Russia. Would this invasion at this scale be possible without the active help, as support, and complicity of Belarus? Not really. Uh, yes, the Russians could uh, have uh, had a greater concentration of forces here in the east in this particular area. But uh, the main important thing, we have to keep in mind what their goal is, Jake, and their goal is Kiev, right here, uh, because that is the center of the Ukrainian universe and, frankly, the Russian universe, as outlined by Vladimir Putin. And that is why Belarus becomes so important. Belarus is complicit in this invasion. There's no question about it. And, and as we just heard in Jim's piece, um, there was a defiant, very brave last stand by border guards on, on part of Ukraine called Snake Island. Is there a significance to that island? There is, actually. This is a very interesting piece of property. Uh, it's right here, uh, in the, not in the middle, but on the edge of the Black Sea. But what's interesting about this, this is Romania. This is a NATO country. And this right here is the mouth of the Danube River. Uh, this is basically uh, Ukraine's southwesternmost border point, and as a result of that, this, had, this island has strategic significance. So what the Russians are effectively doing is they're controlling the area in which uh, traffic, river traffic from the Danube, can enter the Black Sea. So the significance is quite great in this case. Well, that's chilling, actually. Colonel Layton, thank you so much. Appreciate it. We're going to stay with our breaking news. Our CNN correspondent, Sam Kiley is driving from eastern to western Ukraine, and he's live in one town that was hit by Russian missiles just this morning. That's next. Plus, we have breaking news in our health league. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention just changed its guidance for mask wearing indoors. That's ahead. Stay with us. We're back with our breaking news coverage of Russia's war against Ukraine. CNN teams have just arrived to a town in eastern Ukraine that was hit in recent days by Russian strikes. Let's get straight to CNN's Sam Kiley there in the town of Kropanitsky. Uh, Sam, tell us what you're seeing there. Well, this is a town, uh, Jake, about 200 kilometers, 160 miles, almost due south of uh, Kiev. Uh, a town that would otherwise be unremarkable, but it has... Uh, is the base for the 3rd Special Forces Regiment of the Ukrainian Army, was attacked with missiles uh, earlier on today. It's also jam-packed now with refugees, which, as we were driving from the west to the east, we noticed more and more convoys, small self-organised uh, convoys of whole communities on the move from towns in the interior of Ukraine. Because, of course, this is not just a military campaign, although the focus is clearly on Kiev and the decapitation attempt against the Ukrainian government there by Vladimir Putin's armed forces. Uh, there are attacks ongoing in Kharkiv, where we were this morning, and right across the country. And lots of refugees are now pouring in. Uh, we've been travelling around uh, just before and after curfew in this town, and the only people 
on the streets are refugees look, looking in vain in most cases for somewhere to spend the night before heading on uh, most likely to the uh, Polish border. We stopped by one hotel where the receptionist said, listen, money is meaningless here. There was no amount of money that she could uh, take in order to accommodate the 500 people that she already had in the building, Jake. Sam Kiley in Ukraine, thank you so much. Stay safe. Joining us now to discuss Republican Congressman August Pfluger of Texas. He's on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and he served in the Air Force for nearly two decades. He's a colonel in the Air Force Reserves. Congressman, thanks for joining us. His sources tell CNN that U.S. officials are very worried that Kyiv, the capital of Ukraine, could fall under Russian control uh, within days. Um, do you agree? Is that likely to happen? Well, Jake, thanks for having me. And uh, I do agree. Unfortunately, and it's a tragic situation that, you know, you find uh, Kyiv, which I was just there four short weeks ago, meeting with Ukrainian officials, including uh, the president, Zelensky. Uh, and you see that the objective uh, is absolutely Kyiv. It's the control uh, of Ukraine. Uh, and Putin will stop at nothing short of trying to get uh, the capital. Uh, and then from there, uh, I think he we, we need to continue to check him with strength. It's time for Americans to come together, uh, to act with strength, to deter him, because it's not just about Ukraine. This is also about China and other malign actors. The White House just announced uh, that the U.S. government will sanction Vladimir Putin, as well as the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. Um, I know you've been calling for sanctions against Putin. Do you think that's enough? Do you want to see more actions taken by the Biden administration against Russia? And if so, what? I think it's a step in the right direction. Uh, and again, as we come together as America to be unified, strength is the only position that we should take here. Uh, so it's a step in the right direction. But, you know, we really need to go uh, further to the heart of this matter, uh, which is energy. And when I was with President Zelensky, he made it very clear that Nord Stream was the lever. It was the power that emboldened Putin to get to this point. And this was four weeks ago to, to get to the point where he could invade. So We've got to hit them where it hurts. And I think that uh, the start of that really is energy. That's where they've been able to build up their foreign reserves to six, seven hundred billion dollars. And we need to make a mark uh, on on not only Putin, but also any other would be malign actors that might be watching this like China. Russian leaders claim that they're ready to send a a delegation to Minsk in Belarus uh, for talks with Ukrainian leaders. I assume you don't think Russia is actually serious about any sort of diplomatic solution. So why would they make that announcement? Well, this is part of their disinformation, misinformation campaign. Uh, And it's straight out of the playbook. Um, You know, and and I'll give credit to the Biden administration for uh, releasing intelligence ahead of the attack uh, to make it known, not just to the American public, but worldwide, that they intended to use a false flag operation to start the Uh, the provocation. And so this is very similar out of their playbook. Uh, We need to respond uh, by first saying we're not going to negotiate with terrorists. And I think the Ukrainians would also agree with that, that this is a sovereign country. They're going to fight for their borders. uh, And until they pull back, there is no negotiating. So you've been very active in the case of former U.S. Marine Trevor Reed, uh, who's been held in a Russian prison for more than two years. What do you think this war means for efforts by you, by the Biden administration and others to, to get Trevor Reed and, and other detained Americans, such as Paul Whelan, out of captivity? Well, first off, Jake, thank you for your work uh, to highlight this. Uh, it, it's a tragedy, 924 days for Trevor, 
unlawfully held as a political pawn by Vladimir Putin. Um, and we need to get him home. We need to get Paul Whelan home and others home. Unfortunately, I think what the world is waking up to is an actor who is, has been emboldened because of this environment of weakness uh, to not only invade a sovereign country, uh, but to do things like cyber crimes all around the world. And so uh, we, we really uh, need President Biden to step up uh, in this case uh, and make it very clear uh, that none of these actions are okay, that the Western world democratic values uh, are have been impeded in a way uh, that are not okay. And, and I'm praying that we can get him home just as soon as uh, humanly possible. Republican Congressman August Pfluger, thank you so much uh, for your time, sir. And thank you, of course, for your service. Thank you, Jake. Turning to our other top story, President Biden making history today with his Supreme Court nominee. Why her unique background could change the dynamics of the court. That's next. We'll get back to our coverage of the Russian attack and invasion of Ukraine. But first, to our politics lead in the story CNN broke for you this morning moments ago. President Biden made his Supreme Court pick official, selecting Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson as his nominee. She's 51 years old. She's a D.C. Circuit Court judge. If confirmed, she would be the first African-American woman to ever sit on the U.S. Supreme Court. As CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports for us now, some Senate Republicans today are congratulating Brown's nomination, while others remain skeptical. For too long, our government, our courts, haven't looked like America. President Biden making history today nominating the first black woman to serve on the Supreme Court. Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who accepted the president's offer during a call last night, now beginning the confirmation process to become a justice on the nation's highest court. I am truly humbled by the extraordinary honor of this nomination. If approved by the Senate, Jackson would succeed Justice Stephen Breyer, a mentor for whom she worked as a law clerk in 1999. Justice Breyer, The members of the Senate will decide if I fill your seat, but please know that I could never fill your shoes. Her liberal ideology would not change the balance of the court, yet her presence on the bench would mark a major milestone for the court and the country. Today's White House ceremony comes two years to the day since Biden first made the pledge to nominate a black woman on the court as he sought to revive his candidacy before the South Carolina primary. I'm looking forward to making sure there's a black woman on the Supreme Court to make sure I push very hard for that. Jackson has been a federal judge for nearly a decade, elevated last year to the influential U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Incredibly, Judge Jackson has already been confirmed by the United States Senate three times. She strives to be fair, to get it right, to do justice. That's something all of us should remember. Born in Washington and raised in Miami, she spelled out her dreams early, saying in her high school yearbook she aimed to go into law and eventually have a judicial appointment. She did just that, graduating from Harvard, both undergraduate and law school, before serving as a federal public defender. Rare experience for a Supreme Court justice. Justice Breyer exemplified every day in every way that a Supreme Court justice can perform at the highest level of skill and integrity while also being guided by civility, grace, pragmatism, and generosity of spirit. Now 51, with the prospect of being only the third black justice in the court's 233-year history, Jackson has responded to questions about race during previous confirmation hearings, carefully addressing the role it plays in her thinking. 
I don't think that race plays a role in the kind of judge that I have been and that I would be. But not discounting it. I've experienced life uh, in, in perhaps a different way than some of my colleagues because of who I am. For the last year, Biden has been studying the opinions and writings of Jackson and other finalists. A former chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Biden is well accustomed to bruising confirmation fights. This, he said, should not be won. My hope is that they will move promptly, and I know they'll move fairly. And Jake, we are learning more about the secretive meetings that went behind this. The president interviewed three final contenders uh, on Valentine's Day, February 14th, meetings that went under the radar of everyone at the time. He offered the position last evening to Judge Jackson, but this was all held under such tight uh, secrecy. She actually appeared at her day job on the Court of Appeals this morning on a routine hearing as to not to give up the decision. We do know that the meetings will begin tomorrow at the White House to begin preparing her for confirmation hearings. She's set to meet with senators starting next week. All right, Jeff Salony, thanks so much. Uh, Let's discuss. So, Nia Malika, Biden is making this announcement two years to the day after this pledge he made at a South Carolina debate during the 2020 presidential race. Take a look. I'm looking forward to making sure there's a black woman on the Supreme Court to make sure we, in fact, get every representation. Not a joke. Not a joke. And that was a pledge that he made in order to secure the endorsement of House Majority Whip Jim Clyburn of South Carolina, who we're going to have on the show later today. Yeah, that's right. And it was a pledge to secure the votes of African-American voters, particularly black women voters. You heard uh, the crowd go wild (laughs) uh, there in that South Carolina audience. And we know black women are the backbone of the Democratic Party, particularly in those primaries. Uh, And so there you had Joe Biden today standing there with an African-American woman, a vice president, a pledge that he also made to to name a woman to be vice president, uh, and then Katanji Brown Jackson, who's going to make history, already made history as this nominee. And I will say this, it isn't often that we see black women who look like Katanji Brown Jackson in corridors of powder power. Uh, someone who is a dark-skinned African-American woman, uh, who has natural hair, and who has a, as she described it, a funny name. And so I, that's something that I kind of noticed uh, as I was looking at uh, her deliver this very moving uh, vi- vision and sort of journey from her uh, background, a uniquely African-American background. She opened up her speech by quoting an African-American uh, hymn when she said, uh, we come this far by faith. Uh, and she, of course, closed it in talking about Constance uh, Baker Motley a first uh, African-American uh, federal judge who was hugely important in the civil rights movement, not as well known as Thurgood Marshall. She certainly should be uh, because she helped integrate some of those Southern universities uh, and made really important decisions, too, in terms of, of expanding the rights of women. So it was quite a day for America, quite a day for democracy, quite a day for diversity and pluralism. And there were three finalists. He said he was going to pick a black woman, and he did. But the other two black women, uh, South Carolina District Court Judge, Michelle Childs, California Supreme Court Justice, uh, Leandra Kruger, both of them also very uh, highly respected. Why do you think he picked Judge Jackson? Well, you know, you're right, uh, Jake. The finalists were all highly credentialed. But what uh, Judge Jackson brings is the federal public defender experience. She's been in the trenches. She's seen the criminal justice system from the point of the view of the accused, as well as the point of view of the judge, and has also been part of the Federal Sentencing Commission. So when uh, President Biden announced her today. He didn't just talk about diversity in terms of being the first black woman on the court. He also talked about the fact that she was a, a, a lower court trial judge 
Not since Sonia Sotomayor. Have we had anybody on the court who had been a trial judge before? Not since Thurgood Marshall. Have we had anyone on who had done the same kind of public defender sort of work? Lots of prosecutors, not a lot of Well, that's it. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of a a natural step from U.S. attorney to judge. But this was something a little bit different. And then the family history. He He talked about her parents being educators. And then finally, and this is really important for this moment going into the Senate, she has been through the Senate process three times. Right. So she's been scrutinized by the people who now have her fate in their hands. And all three times it worked out. And she, so she's she's ready for this. And last time she got uh, Collins, Murkowski and Lindsey Graham to That's vote exactly for her. Right. Steve, let me bring you in. You pointed out on Twitter that uh, Judge Jackson has almost nine years of judicial experience, which is more than Chief Justice Roberts, as well as uh, Justices Barrett, Thomas and Kagan had combined before they were nominated How might that impact the dynamic of the court were she to be confirmed? Yeah, I mean, Jake, I think it'll impact it a lot. I mean, you heard Nia Malika talk about her life experiences. You heard Joan talk about her, you know, federal public defender experience. And so I think, you know, her trial court experience is also relevant here. Only Justice Sotomayor, among the current justices, has trial court experience. You know, before her, it had been not since Justice O'Connor. And so I think, Jake, what we're really talking about here is diversity along so many axes, Um, And from a candidate, from a nominee who really ticks every conceivable box for the Supreme Court. And I think that's why you're seeing not just so much excitement um, on the part of Democrats behind this nomination, but also not the kind of immediate decisive pushback from Republicans that we might have expected for other potential picks. It's really hard to figure out what the line of attack would be against someone with Judge Jackson's credentials, her background, her experience, you know, her resume. I mean, it is so formidable as to almost make this you know, perhaps a smoother process than what we've seen in the last couple of Supreme Court nominations. Well, we'll see about that. <laughs> right. We'll see about that because uh, Republicans, almost. <laughs> yeah, Republican yeah. Senator Lindsey Graham uh, was praising publicly the, the judge from South Carolina, Judge Childs. Um, after CNN reported that that Biden's pick was actually Judge Jackson, he tweeted, the radical left has won President Biden over yet again. The attacks by the left on Judge Childs from South Carolina apparently work. Radical left. I mean, li- he literally voted for her to be a D.C. Circuit Court judge a year ago. Yeah, and I don't think this shuts the door on him voting for her again. He has said before uh, that elections have consequences, that presidents uh, get to make their picks, and you saw him uh, vote, obviously, for uh, Brown Jackson before. Uh, he just loved Michelle Childs. She is a beloved figure in uh, South Carolina. Jim Clyburn obviously loved her, too, uh, so he really wanted that pick. But I expect that they likely will get the 53. That's what she got uh, before when that vote came uh, to put her on the Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, and so I think that's probably what she'll get before. Always dangerous to make predictions, but I'm putting it out there. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. well, thanks to the panel. We have much more ahead on our world lead. The White House just announcing plans to sanction Vladimir Putin himself. How might that impact the Russian war on Ukraine? Plus, breaking news in our health lead, the CDC just announced a major update to its indoor masking guidance. That's next. We have some break, breaking news for you now in our health lead. The CDC is finally announcing new masking recommendations, saying that people in the vast majority of the United States no longer need to wear masks indoors. The new guidance comes as COVID cases in the U.S. have dropped 90 percent since reaching that peak in mid-January. They're now at pre-Omicron levels. But as CNN's Nick Watt reports for us now, mask mandates have already been scrapped in much of the United States as people are eager to return to semi-normal. The CDC just announced nearly 70% of us no longer need to mask up indoors. 
We want to give people a break from things like mask wearing when our levels are low and then have the ability to reach for them again should things get worse in the future. Why the change? Well, the now dominant Omicron variant spreads faster but causes more mild disease. Plus, vaccines and therapeutics are now widely available. Anybody is certainly welcome to wear a mask at any time if they feel safer wearing a mask. Previously, the CDC was saying 99% of us should be masking up indoors based purely on county level transmission rates. From now on, they'll use hospitalization rates and beds available as the benchmarks. Many states and counties have been ditching mask mandates anyway. Oregon just set a date, March 19th, masks optional. Some folks will and can remain cautious. We still frequent restaurants that have outdoor seating, even though it's kind of cold for that now. Today, the first day here in Los Angeles, you don't have to wear a mask in many indoor public places, but you've got to be fully vaccinated. While customers that are not fully vaccinated must continue to wear a well-fitting mask while indoors. Starting Monday, public school kids in New York City will no longer need to mask outside. And nearly two years after its first recorded case, city leaders are planning the imminent end of many more mandates. Now we're going to start easing up on some of the mandates that are in place to allow people to get back to a level of normalcy. Now, one more very interesting little note regarding the CDC relaxing the mask guidelines. Up until now, they have said that there should be universal masking in schools for school kids. Not anymore. They're now saying that schools should also follow those looser guidelines on the county level when deciding if kids do really need to mask up in the classroom. Jake. Mm. All right, Nick White in Los Angeles, thanks so much for that. Back to the breaking news out of Ukraine and a terrifying new threat from Russia against the International Space Station. That's next. Topping both our world lead and our out-of-this-world lead, Russia's space agency is warning that American sanctions could, quote, destroy cooperation on the International Space Station. The ISS is currently home to four Americans, two Russians, and one German. But Russia controls the engines on board. And Russia is now threatening the possibility that the station could just happen to fall out of orbit. CNN Space and Defense correspondent Kristen Fisher joins us now live. Kristen, this is a crazy story. It's like, nice space station you got there. Shame if anything happened to it. I mean, is this... Is this actually a real threat? That's a great way of putting it. Jake, it's a real threat in the sense that this threat is coming from the head of Russia's space agency. That's NASA's number one partner on the International Space Station. And it's also real in the sense that it is the Russian section, not the American section, that controls all of the propulsion, that has all of the engines. Now, I spoke to several current and former NASA employees and astronauts, and almost all of them said that they believe that this is all bluster and no bite from Dmitry Rogozin because Russia is so invested in the space station. They've spent so much money there, but also because Dmitry Rogozin is known for making these very inflammatory 
remarks, especially on Twitter. He did this, made similar threats the last time that Russia invaded Ukraine back in 2014, and nothing happened. Back then, he was the deputy prime minister of defense for Russia, and he was personally sanctioned by the U.S. government. Now, he is the head of Roscosmos, and just yesterday, President Biden, when he announced those new sanctions, he said that they will degrade Russia's aerospace industry including their space program. And what do you know, a few minutes later, Dmitry Rogozin made this threat on Twitter. And I want to read it to you in full, Jake, because it just is so crazy. Rogozin says, quote, if you block cooperation with us, who will save the International Space Station from an uncontrolled deorbit and fall into the United States or Europe? There's also the possibility of a 500-ton structure falling on India and China. Do you want to threaten them with such a prospect? The ISS, the space station, doesn't fly over Russia. Therefore, all the risks are yours. Are you ready for them? I mean, that is quite the threat. Uh, now, NASA is responding by saying that uh, this cooperation with Roscosmos will continue. They say that these sanctions will continue to allow U.S.-Russia civil cooperation in space. Uh, but, Jake, you know, there is a lot of concern that despite this decades-long partnership, that this time could be different. We keep hearing these threats from Russia, and they just sound like gangsters, every one of them. Kristen Fisher, thank you so much. Uh, Kiev's mayor just warned that that city, that capital city has a long night ahead. And moments ago, this sound filled the city. We're live on the ground across Ukraine. That's next. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome back to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. Breaking news this hour. The Biden administration has said that they are going to unleash sanctions on President Putin himself and on his foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. This is over the unprovoked war against Ukraine. The United Kingdom and European Union also announcing sanctions against Putin and Lavrov earlier today. So far, these threats of economic punishment have done little to stop Putin. The Ukrainian president, defiant this evening, standing in civilian clothing alongside his prime minister and top aides in the streets of the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv, promising to fight for their city, fight for their country a country currently under violent attack by the Russian military. This, as U.S. officials tell CNN, the U.S. is concerned that the capital city of Kyiv will fall within days. In the last hour or so, sirens could be heard across Kyiv, warning Ukrainians of possible airstrikes. It's midnight there now, and the mayor is warning of a difficult night ahead. Earlier, tens of thousands of people including this chaotic crowd at a Kiev train station, were trying to escape the fighting and violence or to reunite with their families in other parts of the country. This woman's husband told her it is too dangerous to travel across the country right now, but she says she's a mom and her heart is telling her she needs to get home. CNN's Matthew Chance is live for us in Kiev right now. And Matthew... You were able to question the Russian foreign minister today, Sergei Lavrov. What did he say about the Kremlin's intentions? Uh, you're right. I was able to speak to uh, Sergei Lavrov earlier today. And I'll get to that in just a moment, Jake, because just as you've come to me within the past few seconds, we are once again hearing the air raid sirens uh, bellow uh, through the nighttime city of, of Kiev right now. It's just turned midnight, as you've just been reporting. And listen to this. This is what whatever is left of the people of, 
of, uh, of Kiev because a lot of them have left the city already. This is what they're hearing right now and they're doing that as Russian forces are poised uh, to come in. Just a few miles in this direction right behind me in the suburb of Obolon, about six miles in that direction in fact. You've got a concentration of Russian armour, Russian forces that have been battling throughout the course of the past day with, with Ukrainian security forces. Just further over to the, to the left there is that airbase, which we know for, for, for a fact because we saw it with our own eyes. Russian special forces have, have been located there. The Russian Defence Ministry says they have now taken it and they are in total control. And that tallies with what we saw as well, although the Ukrainians say that they have control of it. We don't have our eyes on the ground right there right now, so we can't, we can't actually verify who is in control. But there is a great deal of concern tonight about what happens to this city. The, the mayor of Kiev, Vitaly Klitschko, has warned that it will be, it could be, a difficult night for the city. He's put hospitals on high alert. He says that security forces are patrolling key installations, bridges, uh, things like that. And he's you know, warned people to be on guard. Trains have been leaving the city, special evacuation trains to take up to 10,000 people out of the city. They're traveling with emergency lighting to the west of the country. They've all stopped now, but, but that's what happened within the course of the past several hours. Now, you're right, I did earlier get a chance to speak to um, Sergei Lavrov. The US now say they will sanction directly, of course, and asked him what the intention was uh, with those Russian forces now poised at the gates of Kiev. Take a listen. Why are the Russian forces now entering Kiev, surrounding the, the capital and battling with Ukrainian military? Do you intend to decapitate the Ukrainian leadership? Nobody is going to attack the people of Ukraine. Nobody is going to somehow degrade the Ukrainian armed forces. We are talking about preventing neo-Nazis and those promoting genocide from ruling this country because the current regime in Kyiv is under two external control mechanisms. First, the West and the US, and second, neo-Nazis, those who are imposing their culture, and it is flourishing in Ukraine today. As for your feelings, as someone who is in Kyiv at this very moment, I will stress, read what Putin said, no strikes on civilian infrastructure, no strikes on the personnel of the Ukrainian army, on their dormitories or other places not connected to military facilities. Well, I don't know how comforting it is, Jake, to hear Sergei Lavrov there, the Russian foreign minister, saying that civilians in this country are not going to be attacked and the military infrastructure is not going to be degraded, given what we have been witnessing over the course of the past uh, 48 hours. There, there, there was a possibility, a, a small glimmer uh, earlier today of diplomacy, perhaps having a, having a chance when President Zelensky of Ukraine uh, you know, basically pleaded for the sake of people's lives, let's talk about peace. That appeal being made directly to Vladimir Putin uh, of Russia. The Russians came back, actually, and said, look, we'll meet you. We'll meet you in the Belarusian capital, Minsk. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing them a little bit. And we can talk about Ukraine's neutrality. Not something that, uh, that, that President Zelensky brought up. But obviously, the Russians are suggesting that if there is going to be any kind of peace talks, it will be on their terms and it will be to discuss how Ukraine backs away from any suggestion it's going to be involved with the NATO uh, Western Military Alliance uh, and how it is going to be a neutral state in the future. That's not something that, at least in public, Ukrainian officials are prepared at this stage uh, to discuss. It is something else to watch Sergei Lavrov just tell lies that 
everybody in the world can see are just demonstrable lies, just shamelessly telling lies. Neo-Nazis, the, the president of Ukraine is Jewish, Volodymyr Zelensky. It's, it's incredible. And um, Matthew Chance reporting live in Kiev. I, I would like to know, just for people out there who don't understand uh, or know much about Kiev, uh, this is the capital city and it is the most populous city in Ukraine. The population is 2.8 million people. That's bigger than the city of Chicago. Imagine uh, air raid sirens going off like that in Chicago, Illinois, and you get an idea of the magnitude of the scale here. Matthew Chance, thank you so much for your brave reporting. As always, uh, stay safe. The threat is not just in the capital, of course. Today, Ukrainians fought a Russian advance at a key bridge in the city of Kherson, which you can spot along the bottom of your screen on this map. Uh, Kherson sits along a river just north of Crimea, which Russia annexed in 2014. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh was able to get a remarkable firsthand look at the aftermath of that fighting. We want to warn you ahead of time, some of the images that you're about to see are graphic and, and you might find them disturbing. For a moment, this was a bridge too far for Vladimir Putin. As we arrived in the town of Kherson, just before dusk on Thursday, the fighting had crossed over to our side of the river, meaning Russian tanks were in these sleepy streets. But the night brought no rest. Jets flying low, terrifying locals. Airstrikes. Here, a mother's bedtime duty is to switch out the lights. Not to calm her kids, but to protect them from the Kremlin's jets overhead. The boys are noisy, but the girls quiet. It's safer here than on the street, says Lena. Ruslan jumps in. They'll kill us all, he says. Moscow's games scar here. I did hear blasts, but I was not afraid. I heard a tank, he says. But by dawn, it was a case of the Russians are coming, but also maybe not. Ukrainian forces had reclaimed the bridge, but not without a cost. I asked Viktor if the Russians would move back. Yes, the Russians, no far away. Russians, uh, about 3,000 metres. Locals picked through the wreckage for ammunition. It's strange to see civilians picking up leftover armour from vehicles here. It shows you how many people are involved now on a local level in this war effort. Look, he's doing it again. They're just stopping everywhere to pick up whatever they can. It's unclear if the bodies here were discarded because they were Russians or because there were just too many. The Ukrainian military you can see here is the bit that was pushed back. The defenders, still holding this bridge, stayed hidden, waving our cameras away from their positions. On the bridge, the living surreally passing the dead. OK, Odacha. Just saying the Russians are on the other side of the bridge, but you can't see them, but they aren't disturbing civilians. Anyone who wants to run Ukraine needs this tortured piece of concrete. This is the Dnieper River, which basically cuts Ukraine into the side here, which connects to Russia, and this side, which connects to Europe. A vital piece of Ukraine to fight over, and it's been obviously very intense here in the past days. There are no winners here, just holes that will need filling in, and shreds of lives that need collecting. Vladimir is here, helping himself to a hot dog. The other Vladimir, Putin, wants to steal lives here whole. 
for his wider vision of empire restored. For the people in this town, it means afternoons with the noise of rockets landing in the streets. That dusk, the balance of power changed again. Shells landed around Ukrainian positions and, it seemed, near houses. Ambulances unable to get in. Then came this noise, the sound of an attack helicopter. Acute violence that seems to have led the bridge to change hands again. Minutes later, local officials said the city's defences had fallen. But victories here were laden with loss and so bitter in the mouth. It does appear that the city's defences are now in Russian hands, that what we saw at the end of that report was essentially the Russian push through those Ukrainian holdouts here, a city really on edge at the moment. Jake? And Nick, you mentioned there, there are still c- civilians in that, in that town, Kherson. Are people trying to leave? Not on a large scale, as terms of we can see, they just don't know what comes next. I mean, as we were standing here, Jake, a moment ago, the owner of the hotel we were standing in said that she'd seen a masked man with a rifle walking around in the street here. We haven't seen that ourselves, but this is a city really on edge because they know the Russian army is on the outskirts of the town, that the Ukrainian army, as far as they know, have been pushed back, and they are essentially trying to work out whether or not the Russian forces care about coming into here, care about taking control of this pretty sleepy town on a river. Uh, And so while it's deathly silent in the middle of the night here, we've seen sort of a random guy in a flashlight in a courtyard over there moving around. That's just us observing the circumstances. Everyone's really on edge here as to what the next move is. Jake. All right, Nick Payton Walsh reporting live from Hassan, Ukraine. Thank you. Stay safe. Joining us live to discuss... Democratic Congressman Gregory Meeks of New York. He is the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Mr. Chairman, good to see you. Thank you so much uh, for being with us. Our own correspondent has seen the bodies of fallen fighters still lying on the battlefield. What more do you think the Biden administration could be doing today, right now, to try to stop uh, the current and future bloodshed uh, in Ukraine? I know that the Biden administration is threading the needle. Uh, and keeping us unified with our European allies, which is absolutely key. Uh, And as you see, there's more and more sanctions, and there's more still yet to come. Uh, And there will be additional pressure that's going to come from uh, allies, not just our European allies, but allies uh, in uh, Asia, uh, allies on the continent of Africa, uh, allies and democracies across the world. And it is that unity is what's going to ultimately defeat um, uh, Putin. He would like to divide us. And as you've seen thus far, uh, our allies in the United States have steadfastly stood together and increasingly increasing uh, the the sanctions uh, on them uh, and having dialogue and conversation and walking in lockstep. And that's ultimately what's going to be uh, his defeat. And the Russians... Uh, And unfortunately, the Russian people are also going to feel some damage because of this outrageous, aggressive and murderous actions of uh, of Putin. I want to get your reaction to something we heard from Republican Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska earlier today. Take a listen, please. 
Putin is not going to be deterred. We've got to make sure his cronies um, feel the pressure so that they can look back at him and say, what the hell are you doing? Um, these corrupt mobsters, they don't have any desire to live in the hellhole Moscow that Putin wants to create. Uh, they want to live in, in London and other places, and they need to be perp walked out of those places. Do you think that would be effective just to just to criminally go after every single one of these oligarchs that uh, that Putin helps protect and who help protect him? I think that the oligarchs, if there was criminal actions on their part, uh, in the end, that process will take its own accord. Uh, and they will. And those individuals, because we may be seeing war crimes here, et cetera, uh, and that will take place uh, at the appropriate time. Right now, what we need to do is to make sure that we stay united uh, and move forward so that the pain that Putin is, will feel uh, continues. Uh, and we've got to make sure that there is no... We, the, our NATO allies have already uh, went forward with Article 4. There's no Article 5 of NATO uh, yet, uh, but there's been threats even by Putin uh, to Estonia for example, who will be sending some weapons over to help Ukraine, as we will continue sending weapons over to help Ukraine. And if there's a violation then, then we have a Section 5 issue. Uh, but we're going to move forward on the Section 4, where all of our allies are continuously uh, in contact and working with one another to continue to escalate the sanctions against, uh, uh, against Putin. And I think Putin is also seeing the resolve of the Ukrainian people. Uh, that, you know, I was just there, Jake, about three weeks ago. Uh, and when I talked to them, and I just think of the disaster that's taking place now in Kyiv, but when I talked to them there, they said they will fight. Uh, and uh, you see uh, that they are indeed fighting. Uh, and some have said that they've pushed them back from the bridge and it's going back and forth, but against, and people uh, who have not even been trained of being armed to fight. They do not want to be under uh, the, the dictations, the dictator, uh, Putin, uh, trying to take over their sovereign property. Uh, and I just, today, you know, the message is, that I see, you know, uh, as far as the resolve of the Ukrainian people to make sure that um, Putin understands that there is going to be resistance and they're not going to be able to uh, come in under the lies. I mean, you said it earlier in the show, the absolute lies that he is getting, he is acting like, uh, like, 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 like Hitler himself. Uh, by, by his actions, uh, as opposed to trying to flip the coin and saying something is happening in Ukraine. There's only one aggressor, one aggressor in this. Uh, NATO is a defensive organization. Only one country sent troops uh, to the, initially to the border and lied and said that they had no interest in attacking Ukraine. They lied. So you know that you cannot believe or trust anything that uh, the Russians under Putin say. Chairman Gregory Meeks of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time today, sir. Coming up, a new terrifying threat from the Russians as they wage an unprovoked, deadly war on Ukraine. Those details next. We're back with breaking news in our worldly. The Biden administration believes that Russia will threaten to kill the families of Ukrainian soldiers, if those soldiers do not surrender. That's according to a U.S. official who spoke to CNN. Let's go straight to CNN's Kylie Atwood, live for us at the State Department, uh, who's breaking the story. Kylie, is the State Department saying why they think this will happen, this threat to soldiers? 
No, they're not yet telling us exactly what this is based on. I mean, presumably it's based on uh, U.S. intelligence because they've been sharing a lot of what they've been seeing in U.S. intelligence reports before, of course, it happens. But, Jake, this is incredibly alarming that the United States believes that these Russians are going to come in and threaten to kill the family members of Ukrainian soldiers, not just those soldiers themselves, but their family members. The other thing that this U.S. official is saying is that they believe that the Russians are creating a disinformation campaign uh, that casts Ukrainian soldiers as standing back and surrendering when that's not actually what's happening. So essentially uh, creating the idea that they are surrendering so that it's out there, so that it then discourages those Ukrainians to surrender, a roundabout way of getting them to surrender with disinformation. And the Kremlin also is saying, and again, we have to, everything they say, uh, we, need, we need to think about the fact that they lie uh, as, a, as a professional uh, purpose. But the Kremlin is also saying that they're ready to talk with Ukrainian officials in, in Belarus, specifically in Minsk. Um, is there anyone in the Biden administration who thinks that offer is, is an actual sincere offer? Well, listen, we've heard State Department officials, Biden administration officials saying that Russia has only engaged in a pretext of diplomacy, that, you know, in the days and weeks leading up to this invasion, that they weren't actually investigating, uh, sorry, indicating that they were in good faith at the table. And so uh, when you see this proposal put forth, U.S. officials say, no, now is not the time to engage in diplomacy. You can't have productive diplomacy when you have a gun to the head of the Ukrainians. All right, Kylie Atwood at the U.S. State Department for us. Thanks so much. Sticking with our breaking news, the White House just announced that the U.S. will sanction Vladimir Putin specifically. Will that do anything? to stop his country's invasion of Ukraine or are sanctions even an outdated threat? That's next. We're back with more breaking news in our worldly. Just moments ago, the White House confirmed that the U.S. government will sanction Russian President Vladimir Putin himself, as well as sanctioning Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. This is a decision made in tandem with European allies who announced similar sanctions earlier today as Putin continues to wave off consequences of intended economic strangulation. Our panel joins us now. Let me start with uh, Julia Yaffe. Julia, more than a dozen current and former U.S. officials tell Bloomberg News that they've, quote, been deeply dubious that sanctions would change Putin's behavior, yet after Biden made clear last year that the U.S. would not send troops or heavy weapons to Ukraine, there were no other solid options. It was left to his team to try to prove for the first time that the threat of economic warfare against a major adversary like Russia would suffice when military deterrence was not an option. I guess the question I have is, do you think sanctions are outdated, uh, a relic of a previous era, especially when it comes to to Russia? And and do you think the U.S. sanctioning Putin directly will do anything? Well, I'll start with the second question because it's the easier one. I don't think it will do much because I think it's pretty clear that Vladimir Putin is not in this for the money. And uh, even though he has enriched himself in the post of the presidency, it's just, it's not the point anymore for him. The point is power and his world historical role as Russian, as the Russian president, in his mind at least. As for sanctions, they're a very imperfect tool. And I think this administration, I've heard similar things from administration officials. I think it's the first time a U.S. administration both sees the Putin regime and Putin himself very clearly and has come to recognize that sanctions aren't really a preventative measure as much as they are a punitive measure. And there is an understanding 
as far as my reporting shows inside the White House and the State Department, that they understand that, that this isn't, that they're not implementing these sanctions to deter him because he will not be deterred. Um, I'm not sure that anything would have deterred him in this case, um, unless there were maybe U.S. troops on the ground and like tactical nukes. Otherwise, um, he seemed pretty dead set on doing this, but also doing nothing and not punishing Russia for invading a sovereign country is also not an option. So it's almost like pro forma, but at the same time, you know, I'm seeing Russian friends and journalists tweet about this. Um, It's having a very rapid effect on the Russian economy and it's only going to get worse and worse, but it's not Putin and his inner circle that's going to suffer. It's going to be average Russian again. David Sanger. And they're not the ones that have with. Say that again, Julia. I miss. I missed that. Sorry, I, I was going to say that the average Russians didn't have much say in this to begin with. Yeah, um, exactly. It's an autocratic regime. And, yeah. But David Sanger, if, if if sanctions don't work to deter somebody like Putin, is there anything that would? Well, first of all, we haven't tried the sanctions that would really affect him the most. I mean, it's nice to sanction him personally and Secretary Lavrov personally. But they don't keep a whole lot of money around in places that they'd be able to get at. Putin's money is believed to be held by some of the oligarch families. It's well concealed. Um, the second, Jake, is the history of sanctions working. If you were to like, take out a piece of paper and lay out what countries did it work on and which ones didn't it work on, well, South Africa, it worked on a demo- roughly a democracy. Although it took time. years and years and years. And it took years. Yeah. Cuba? Put, they were put on first by Kennedy. We're still waiting for them to actually take effect and, and, and deter them. North Korea, that's been a real great success story. Iran, President Trump reimposed sanctions after he pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal, saying it would bring them back to the table. It didn't. I could go on with a much longer list. It was interesting yesterday that President Biden said during his speech and the news conference, a brief news conference that followed, we never really thought sanctions would change his behavior. Well, we had a lot of officials who said that's what the intent was. Including the vice president. Including the vice president, Jake Sullivan, others. But the fact of the matter is that they didn't. So what would make a difference? If they were able to cut off the oil and gas revenue, well, that's 40% of the Russian government's annual budget revenue. That might actually impress them. But because Europe has been gotten so dependent on Russian gas and more dependent now than they were a few years ago, that's not an option. So we've sort of taken off the table the sanctions that have the best chance of working. And, and Colonel Layton, for the first time ever, the NATO response force has been activated. That has never happened before in the entire history of NATO. What does that mean? Give us a sense of the strength of the NATO response force up against Russia if Russia were to go into a NATO allied country, uh, NATO member country, and this uh, NATO response force is actually used. Yeah, so the NATO response force, Jake, is a 40,000 strong military force, has to get the approval of all 30 members of NATO in order to actually be activated. They did that. They have a nice, fairly lengthy statement that talks about uh, 
doing that and it has not been deployed yet. But when it is deployed, the basic idea is that it can move rapidly. It'll include uh, elements of the Army forces, the land forces, naval forces, air forces, and of course special operations forces. So it's designed to be a very quick uh, method to go after a, you know, a, an incursion uh, into NATO territory. And, and David, something else just uh, happened today. Um, Finland yesterday said that because of Russia invading, Finland is not a NATO member. Finland is a, is, has tried to be neutral in all of this. Um, Finland said yesterday to the Prime Minister that because of what Russia did, this might make Finland you know, rethink uh, its posture when it comes to NATO membership and maybe, maybe try to become a member of NATO. And the Russian foreign ministry said today, basically threatened Finland that this would really have disastrous political and military consequences. Uh, what's your response to that? So you see the problem now of not being in and not being fully out, but being sort of neutral, which is that once you show any interest in going into NATO, suddenly Russia would threaten you on the theory that they could overrun you before NATO got around to admitting you into the club and thus surrounding you with the defenses. It's no accident that Vladimir Putin picked Ukraine in this case. He, know, he understands Article 5. He knows what would, the result would be if a, an attack on one became an attack on all. He doesn't want to add to NATO's numbers. He's trying to subtract from their numbers. And Julia, President Zelensky of Ukraine just gave a speech where he said, quote, this night we have to stand ground. The fate of Ukraine is being decided right now, unquote. But of course, it's not just Ukraine's future at stake right now. It, yeah, it's the future of Europe. You're already seeing, you know, within the first 36 hours, 50,000 refugees have flooded into Europe. It's also the future of Russia. Um, I think this this will take Russia and Ukraine into in, in directions we have yet to fathom. Yeah. Julia Yaffe, uh, Cedric and David, thanks one and all for being here. We're going to continue watching the breaking news in Ukraine. There is another important breaking story, of course. President Biden made history today with his Supreme Court nominee. That story's ahead. In our politics lead, it is a historic day for the Biden presidency, even as the White House is continuing to watch this ongoing crisis in Ukraine. Today, the president nominated Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. If confirmed, Judge Jackson will fill the seat of retiring Justice Stephen Breyer. And as CNN's MJ Lee reports, she would then become the first black woman ever to serve on the highest court in the land. It's horrific to watch. It's heart-wrenching to watch. President Biden closely watching Ukraine as conditions on the ground rapidly deteriorate. The president speaking on the phone with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky earlier today. He commended his brave uh, leadership, his brave actions, the brave actions of the Ukrainian people who are fighting to defend their country. As U.S. intelligence officials warn that Ukraine's capital city of Kyiv could be captured by Russian forces within days. And we've continued to see uh, Russia's uh, progression. Uh, even as we've seen uh, resistance on the ground, uh, Russia's, military continu- Russia's military continues to advance toward Kyiv. So there is that real possibility. The two leaders speaking after Zelensky publicly suggested his country is not receiving adequate support from the U.S. and that sanctions are not enough to stop Russia's intensifying invasion. 
Russia was hit with sanctions yesterday, but these are not enough to get these foreign troops off our soil. Biden again consulting with NATO leaders as NATO announced the activation of its response force for the first time. We have to take this seriously. The U.S. also announcing sanctions on Russian President Vladimir Putin. Amid the conflict overseas, the president also marking a historic day at the White House. Today, uh, as we watch freedom and liberty under attack abroad, I'm here to fulfill my responsibilities under the Constitution to preserve freedom and liberty here in the United States of America. Nominating Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson to replace retiring Justice Stephen Breyer. For too long, our government, our courts, haven't looked like America. And I believe it's time that we have a court that reflects the full talents and greatness of our nation. If confirmed, Jackson would be the first black woman to serve on the highest court. As it happens, I share a birthday with the first black woman ever to be appointed as a federal judge, the Honorable Constance Baker Motley. Today, I proudly stand on Judge Motley's shoulders, sharing not only her birthday, but also her steadfast and courageous commitment to equal justice under law. Jackson, a former clerk for Justice Breyer, expressing gratitude to her former boss in her remarks. Justice Breyer, the members of the Senate will decide if I fill your seat, but please know that I could never fill your shoes. Now that confirmation process is already underway. Judge Jackson is expected to start meeting with senators next week. And notably, Jake, uh, President Biden noted today that Jackson has been already confirmed by the Senate three times in the past, including by getting some Republican support. But of course, we've already started hearing some criticism of this nomination from some Republican senators, including the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who today uh, said that she was the favored choice of far-left dark money groups. Jake. All right, MJ Lee reporting from the White House for us. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Here to discuss President Biden's Supreme Court pick is Congressman James Clyburn of South Carolina, the House Majority Whip. Uh, Congressman, two years ago today, to this very day, then candidate Biden pledged to nominate the first black woman to the Supreme Court if elected. President Obama tweeted her selection has, quote, already inspired young black women like my daughters to set their sights higher in her confirmation will help them believe they can be anything they want to be. We should note that Biden made that pledge because he wanted your endorsement. Um, Tell us what this history-making pick means to you. Well, thank you very much for having me, uh, Jake. It means a whole lot to me, but also means a whole lot to my three grown daughters. Uh, My daughters, uh, or among those people, Uh, who spoke to me uh, back when we were going through all of our uh, decision-making, trying to decide uh, what to do here in South Carolina uh, to pick a nominee. And the Supreme Court lack of an African-American woman was constantly being discussed. And so that's how uh, I decided uh, to put that into the mix uh, when I talked to candidates two years ago. And so the president is making history today, but he's also fulfilling a commitment that he made. And that's the kind of Joe Biden uh, that I know. Well, just to take one step 
uh, back from it all, sir, if I, if I can. That decision that you made was rather momentous. If you had not endorsed Joe Biden, he would not be president. And if you had not exacted that pledge, uh, then Judge Jackson would not be the Supreme Court nominee. I mean, that must feel pretty cool. Well, you know, I don't know. All of that speculation. So, you know, he did it and it happened. I don't know. It may have happened without uh, my endorsement or without that pledge. But we made the endorsement. He made the pledge and it has happened. Now, I want to say that all of us started discussing this two years ago. And then all of a sudden during the discussions, a lot of people made a lot of recommendations as to who it should be. I joined in that, and I recommended a South Carolinian who I'm very proud of, and most South Carolinians are. Uh, And she got considered. She was in the final three. Uh, She was not the choice. But let me tell you, this is a good choice, a choice that I think deserves really unanimous support. I know she won't get it, but she should get strong bipartisan support he is eminently qualified to serve uh, on the United States Supreme Court, and I'm doing everything I can uh, to be helpful. So you just uh, alluded to the fact that uh, you had wanted the president to pick uh, Judge Michelle Childs, um, although you support uh, the nomination of, of Judge Jackson. Did President Biden explain to you why he did not pick Judge Childs? No, he didn't have to. Uh, as you know, nobody had ever heard of Judge Childs across the country until Lindsey Graham, Ken Scott, and myself uh, started talking about her. And she got a lot of scrutiny, uh, most of it very positive. And so I think the president was very positive on her. If he were uh, not positive, he would not uh, have nominated her uh, or, or would not have Uh, interviewed her uh, among the last three people that he was considering. So he's very high on her. And I uh, I thank the president uh, for uh, honoring the state of South Carolina, honoring uh, public colleges uh, by interviewing her for this job. Uh, And I think uh, that he uh, did uh, what he thought was the best thing to do in nominating the person that he did. And I support that. So you, you just mentioned South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, who, who joined you in, in publicly supporting the nomination of, of Justice Childs. We should point out Graham was also one of three Republican senators uh, to vote to confirm Judge Jackson to her current position on the D.C. Court of Appeals. He did that last summer, but he attacked her nomination today, saying that it suggests the radical left won uh, because the Ch- Judge Childs was not picked. Uh, what was your reaction when you saw that statement? I smiled. Uh, look, Lindsey Graham and I uh, are from the same state, but we've had a different background and experiences growing up. So what he sees in this nomination may be totally different, and is totally different from what I see. I do not see this at all the way he's expressed today. I think it's a mainstream nomination. I think that she is Uh, an African-American woman born and raised in the South, having been educated uh, elsewhere, lived in Washington, D.C. for a long, long time. And the way I see it, Washington, D.C. 
is below the Mason-Dixon line. So she knows a lot uh, about Southern living. And I think uh, she brings diversity uh, to this court uh, that we have not had before. Con- Congressman uh, James Clyburn, the House Majority Whip, thank you so much. Have a good weekend, sir. It's good to see you again. Back to the breaking news in our world lead. The Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is warning that tonight will be very difficult as people around the world are coming together to show their support for the people of Ukraine. That's next. Watching video from Kyiv, the capital of Ukraine today, a woman brushing glass from the window, still singing the Ukrainian national anthem. At the end there, she says, quote, long live Ukraine. We want to take a a brief moment to show you the global impact of Vladimir Putin's unprovoked bloody war and the fierce widespread outrage we're seeing from around the world. While war continues to unfold on the streets of Ukraine, in Paris, several hundreds of people gathered in support of Ukraine. In Berlin, Germany, protest in front of the Brandenburg Gate. More than 200 people showed up outside the Russian embassy in Tel Aviv, Israel, and hundreds of Ukrainians gathered outside the gates of Downing Street, In London, in the U.S., rallies in New York, in Massachusetts, in North Carolina, and in Colorado. Ukrainians and Ukrainian-Americans say they feel helpless and worried. This is horrible. Our families are there. Uh, Little kids are there. Like last night, pretty much didn't sleep at all. Because how can you sleep? How can you sleep knowing that there are airplanes flying and dropping bombs on a city where your family is, your friends... Back in Russia, some 1,700 Russian protesters in more than 50 Russian cities have been arrested so far, protesting Putin's war. More than 900 of them in Moscow alone. We should also note, in just the last few minutes, Russia used its veto power to block a United Nations Security Council resolution condemning its invasion of Ukraine. We'll be right back. Don't miss CNN State of the Union this Sunday morning. My colleague Dana Bash will talk to Republican Senator Mitt Romney plus NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. That's at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern Sunday on CNN. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Have a wonderful, peaceful weekend. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.